Thank you, Terry. We shall see. We shall see. Uh, the, I, I was uh, thinking about introductions with Terry as we were starting off, um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm very pleased that we got a short one. But I just want to add to what he said that part of my career had me at the Library of Congress for 21 years, uh, where I had a chance to use books and uh, photographs together. Uh, I saw the flyer on the way in for this talk, and uh, it has been misadvertised. If anybody expects that I am going to talk about uh, photographs as illustration, uh, you're welcome to leave now. I won't be offended. Um, and um, uh, I, I thought I would do something else. And it's a bit of a problem what I'm going to do, because I know that everybody here is quite aware that all printed material today is produced through the substantial intervention of photography. Uh, I don't know if you're aware how recent uh, an innovation that is. Um, it wasn't even half a century ago that uh, photolithographic printing was regarded as an inferior cousin of the letterpress. And I remember Stanley Morrison and other guardians of the heritage began to view with alarm the consequences of photo typesetting, uh, where uh, spacing would all go to hell, uh, serifs would be lost, and so on. Well, today, hardly a page is printed any other way. There's virtually no letterpress printing except uh, uh, if you if you seek it out carefully, being done uh, in the commercial world, at least in the production of general books and periodicals. And pictures now are ubiquitous, whether this is the result of our growing dependence upon television or the result of the extraordinary technological progress in printing and image reproduction technology since the 1950s, I can't tell you. But you have only to look at newspapers, magazines, book covers to see there's been an explosion in the use of pictorial materials, and it's all brought about through the intervention of photography. So this afternoon, I wanted to examine some of the many ways in which the photograph relates to the book, not just as a source of illustration, although that will be my, one of my themes, and I will try to recover some of the stages along the way to the present from the very beginnings of photography as people explored how to bring these two technologies, the technology of photography, the technology of book production together. I want to talk about technical problems and their solutions. I also want to talk about what photographers and publishers hope to achieve when they use photographs in their books and about the various things these books have communicated. But I can, of course, only scratch the surface of all this. And I warn you, this is very much my own personal take on it. I've, uh, I've thrown in a few things just because I thought they were interesting, and I hope they'll amuse you as well. Well, let's start with the invention of photography. We're talking about the years between around 1826 and 1839. Photography is the fixing of an image on a portable surface through the action of light on a light-sensitive material. And it came about almost exactly 400 years after the invention 
of printing from movable type in Europe. Now, printing was an invention first of the Chinese or the Asians, anyhow, and the Germans later. But photography was devised simultaneously, though differently, in England and in France. As with photography, there were several experimenters in Northern Europe who were working towards the mechanization in the printing of books. And Gutenberg may have brought off the first significant achievement in the mid-1450s, but Steinberg points out that within 15 years, every country in Christendom had a printing press. Well, photography spread even more quickly. And partly that was because, let's see if we can make this happen, one of the inventors, focus, 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 yes, Louis Jacques de Daguerre in France gave his invention to the world without restriction, explaining it before the French Academy of Sciences and publishing the process shortly thereafter. Here you have the title page of his um, slightly out of focus uh, Manual Historique et Description. Um, and there was another inventor, as I said, in England, and he was William Henry Fox Talbot. He also gave a paper to the Royal Society, which he entitled some account of the art of photogenic drawing or the process by which natural objects may be made to delineate themselves without the aid of the artist's pencil. Published 1839, same year as Daguerre's manual. But as I said, the French bought the process from Daguerre, essentially, gave it to the public. Fox Talbot, let's have a portrait of him, uh, patented his process, his project, his uh, process. So he retained the rights to license it, and therefore uh, there was a much more restricted use, uh, and it spread worldwide much more slowly. Um, now the Talbotype, as he first called it, uh, or then the Callotype, the beautiful print, started out very simply. He made a picture around 1835 uh, of a latticed window at his place, Laycock Abbey in England. Uh, and you can, with a glass, see the 200 squares uh, in, the, in the window there. It is perfectly true. Um, but this, from this simple beginning, Talbot figured out that by making that a paper negative, oiling the paper and then printing it, you could get a very lovely, tonally subtle print, such as this one of the Martyrs Monument in Oxford. Um, the daguerreotype, by contrast, uh, once it was once it was uh, given to the world, within about a year, uh, came over to America and. In America, of course, you've got people doing things like this, uh, so you could get your teeth fixed, and after they were fixed, you could get your new smile recorded on a daguerreotype. Uh, there were literally hundreds of daguerreotypists in the U.S. Um, and 
ordinary people like this couple from Illinois. Uh, not yet, not yet well known, uh, had themselves taken by the daguerreotypist, uh, reasonably inexpensively. I, so I somewhat oversimplified these early years because I want to get by them quickly and talk a little bit about how all this, why all this was done and, and what, what the, the oops, <clears throat> The reason these people were so anxious to get photography going is that artists <clears throat> for years had been trying to find a way to rationalize their work. I show you a Durer drawing. Uh, actually, in which you see an artist using a sort of a drawing device uh, which allows him to uh, look at a figure and uh, on this screen he can translate the three-dimensionality of what the scene in front of him uh, onto the two-dimensionality of the paper. Uh, around, well, for years in fact, People had noticed around this time that if you had a lens and you were in a darkened room, and I don't happen to have any pictures to show you uh, to describe this, you could project the outside scene onto a wall. It was upside down, and uh, still there it was, magically drawn for you. But how could you capture this? Well, the thing is, you didn't just have somebody throw a few chemicals together and say, there, I've got it. Uh, for one thing, they realized that this image you got from the outside was remarkably free of any errors in drawing. I mean, the perspective was all resolved for you. It was in accurate color, and if the lens was properly ground, it was exceedingly sharp because the, the accurate transcription of the lens far surpassed what the eye could draw. Now, during the Age of Enlightenment, the classification of uh, substances occupied people who would later be called chemists, then were called natural philosophers. And among the substances they tested, they discovered that there were a number of photogenic substances, things that changed properties, changed color when exposed to light. And uh, one of them, for instance, is silver nitrate, or uh, in fact, uh, metallic silver. Uh, but silver nitrate or other silver salts will do this very quickly. In the first two decades of the 19th century, taking on what had been discovered in the 18th, people were exploring how this change might be controlled. And one of them, Joseph Nicephore Nieps, N-I-E-P-C-E, -E, this man, discovered that if you coated a metal plate with bitumen um, and then stuck it in the focal plane of a lens and left it there for a very long time, the, the action of the tarry coating on the metal 
actually was changed by the light. What's interesting about this is that it took all day. Therefore, there isn't a very good light source. What you have is uh, no sense that the sun is coming from here or coming from there. As you notice, it falls on this wall and it falls on this wall because it took all day for the photograph to be developed. Well, by itself, this achievement, this is in the University of Texas Humanities Research Center. Now, uh, it, it's very difficult to see. You've got to tilt this thing around. Um, would never have captured the imagination of the world. And color was absent, of course, uh, but at least he paved the way for more experimentation. And it was Daguerre who came in to see his work and, in fact, became a partner of his. The years between 1836 and 39 were crucial to both of these inventors. And the major discovery that facilitated their work is the third thing you know, if you've made photographs, which I'm sure you all have, you know that you have to fix the photograph. And it was Sir John Herschel, the astronomer, who discovered that hyposulfite of sodium would wash away the undeveloped silver salts, uh, and you could use silver uh, nitrate or whatever it was, then uh, after the exposure, develop it, and then wash out the undeveloped silver uh, with the hypo, and then they had it. So you had the ability to make uh, the calotype. Now, the daguerreotype was different. The daguerreotype was done with a slightly different process, but also used fixing at the end. You had to wash off the undeveloped silver salts. Now, one problem with the daguerreotype is that it required a very long exposure. So long that here you have a picture, I mean, quite a magical picture, uh, of the uh, Boulevard du Temple in Paris, 1838. But you notice that there isn't a person on the street or a carriage on the road, despite the fact this is one of the major thoroughfares. In fact, there is a person down here. A man has stopped to have his shoes shined. And by staying there for several minutes, he has impressed himself on the plate. Everybody else was walking along the boulevard, uh, or the uh, vehicles were passing, and they did not record on the plate, as the buildings did, and as this one chap who was having his, his, his shoes fixed, uh, his shoes uh, clean. So, Still, people were dazzled by this because of the clarity of the image, the uh, range of tonality that you could get, the fact that even the lettering on a sign on the building, all the chimney pots, all of this was recorded and in appropriate perspective of the street. Now, the calotype, on the other hand, was a negative-positive process, and here is a negative here is a positive printed from that negative, uh, and you can see that there are quite wonderful tonalities possible. Here, much more delicate, much less crisp than the uh, daguerreotype, and possible to do many copies. The daguerreotype is a unique original. The calotype could be done in multiple copies. And here you see Mr. Talbot's printing establishment in Reading, where the printing of, of many pictures could go on in the sunlight hour after hour, as long as the sun came out. I think in England, 
this must have been a problem, but then uh, there you have it. And the use of calotypes for the illustration of books occurred to Fox Talbot early on. And we have from him, in 1844, The Pencil of Nature. Now, this is one of the very earliest books that is uh, illustrated with photographs. It's entirely illustrated with the calotypes that he printed, or that his establishment printed. Here is the title, the uh, sort of cover uh, page, and here is the title page. Uh, <clears throat> he was a fellow of the Royal Society, as you can see, uh, and um, he, uh, uh, he had it published at Longman Brown uh, in 44. And each page then has text and facing it a tipped-in uh, print. Very beautiful print. With a text that describes the many possibilities of the photogenic process. Here is another of the plates. As you can see it a little better. The open door. Um, landscape, architectural renderings, still life. All of this was possible with the calotype. The exposures were too long, especially at the beginning, for portraits. And only a few years later did they speed up the emulsion enough so that the calotype could be used for portraiture. <clears throat> That's another story. I'd like to talk about it, but we don't have time now. Now, the daguerreotype entered the world of book publishing by a more indirect route. As I said, it's a unique object. And it was recognized that the image in reverse, which it is, the Boulevard de Temple really runs the other way from what I showed you, would make an ideal printing plate. The problem was that it was very difficult to figure out a way to etch it or engrave it so it would hold ink as a copper engraving did, for instance, um, because if you did that, you destroyed the image itself. And you couldn't just use the fragile image itself, which is a molecules thick uh, coating of particles of metallic silver or amalgam on this highly polished base. And you couldn't really make that serve as an etching resist. So people struggled with this. A, a couple of men named uh, Hippolyte Fizeau and uh, Donnet, anyhow, Donnet and Fizeau in the 1840s managed to do prints like this, which were made from daguerreotypes that they etched. And they got several prints, but not a whole edition. And I think Fizo actually was able to make an etched plate and then make a kind of a, um, uh, what should I say, a mold of that plate, and by that process make a printing plate from it and get a somewhat larger edition. Uh, the 1845 Cours de micros Microscope, Cours de microsco Microscopic Course, which used hand engravings after the daguerreotype, uh, the Gernsheims thought to be the very first uh, scientific publication from, from medical specimens using photography. In 1845, one of those American entrepreneurs came to Washington from the Dakotas, a man named John Plum, Jr., and photographed the U.S. Capitol. Here you see his daguerreotype. This is one of the things that I 
managed to get hold of um, when I was uh, working there. Uh, whoops. And um, it's quite a, a wonderful, wonderful image of the Capitol. And Plum realized that, and he thought that he would do a series of uh, illustrations using his daguerreotypes, and here they are. Now, this is rather curious, because you notice that the, well, maybe you don't notice, the, um, the statue is here on the, as we see it on, the, on our left uh, of the portico. And, whoops. And in the reproduction, the statue is also on that side. So, how did that come about? It couldn't have been printed directly from the daguerreotype plate, and it was not. It is called, if you crawl up right at the screen, it is called a plumbotype. And Mr. Plum uh, said that he had found a way to make uh, prints directly from his, uh, from his daguerreotypes. This was not true. This is simply a lithograph. But, but even these lithographs had special properties that didn't escape the alert critic. I mean, the, the lighting, uh, the sense of detail, the sense of drawing uh, is really quite extraordinary and uh, was one of the things that I think people were struck by. Now, this didn't stop Plum from publishing a whole series of prints in what he called the National Plumbotype Gallery. Many of these were portraits, uh, and they were very clearly drawn, but they were drawn from his daguerreotypes. Here is the Reverend Dr. Dewey, uh, and it is daguerreotyped and photographed uh, by Plum for the National Gallery. Now, here somebody writes in his book, he's talking about the plates in his book, and he says, these plates are valuable, some of them enlarged and adapted from daguerreotypes, taken under my own superintendence. Unfortunately, those are the great distance. Renders even the daguerreotype indistinct, and I cannot answer for certain details, but Clearly, this author was dazzled with the idea that the daguerreotype could assist him in the reporting of architecture. And this author was none other than John Ruskin in The Seven Lamps of Architecture. And it is not very well known that Ruskin, who, if you probably stopped him on the street and asked him what he thought about photography, would have said, that it was the end of Western civilization as he knew it, uh, nonetheless used daguerreotypes. This is a plate from a daguerreotype uh, in uh, Florence, the uh, Campanile in Florence. And Ruskin did supervise the making of these photographs. And I think it's very interesting that in The Seven Lamps uh, in 1855, he should have already used uh, the daguerreotype as source of illustration and acknowledge it. The wet plate process now supplanted the daguerreotype. The wet plate process used all this stuff, the camera, and a darkroom that had, in a 
that had to accompany you, uh, the, the plate from the camera had to be sensitized first, it was glass plate covered with collodion of silver, put into the camera while wet, exposed, taken out, put back in the dark, and then developed immediately and fixed, uh, and then washed. And this made a negative from which a great many prints could be made. And this was in the 1850s, about the same time as Ruskin's book came out. And this was the thing that speeded up the production of books. And the enterprising photographers, here is uh, Fenton, Roger Fenton in England. Uh, you could have seen the same kind of cart from Matthew Brady and his associated photographers here 10 years later. This is 1855 or so uh, in the Crimean War. And Fenton took his photographic uh, van out to the Crimea. He photographed the battle scene at Balaclava, the old castle. Um, he published these wonderful books uh, in his book, uh, The uh, Photographs of the Seat of War in the Crimea. And his work, here are some of the troops on the scene. Still difficult to make printing plates directly from photographic originals. So the books that I've shown, uh, the illustrations are made by tipping in the original photographic prints on every page. This is very, very labor intensive, of course, and subject to great problems of quality control. Uh, in America, the Civil War uh, caused, as you know, another important publication to come out by a photographer, and of course, uh, by several photographers. This, uh, this one, of course, everyone knows now because of the uh, Ken Burns Civil War uh, TV series, which used uh, practically everything that was in their books. Um, the power and immediacy of these images brought them instant renown. And millions of people on both sides have been personally involved in this conflict. They had, they had themselves fought or they had relatives in the war. And even to see uh, dead soldiers, such as these dead Confederates at Round Top, uh, were uh, important to the American public. The book sold well. The book was extremely well known. Uh, and it is, of course, a pioneer in the reporting of a war because Gardner and Brady went farther than Fenton was able to do and actually showed um, the aftermath of the conflict in a way that uh, I don't recall in any of Fenton's plates. Others, like Oscar Rylander, dealt with subjects other than war in the mid-19th century. Here are some scientific studies of expression which were meant for the use of artists as well as medical people. Here is one of Mr. Brady's daguerreotypes as the title page for a play. Uh, the daguerreotype is of the actor Edwin Forrest. Uh, the play is The Spanish Wife, which I'm sure you've all seen. Um, This is rather interesting. 1853, the first visual arts text that I know that used a photographic reproduction uh, of a work, uh, an etching of Rembrandt. Very, very 
uh, sensitively reproduced, I should say, pioneering effort in photolithography. This was a case where the uh, uh, Bisson uh, frère and Le Mercier, the wonderful French printers, uh, were able to find a photographic way of making uh, the resist go away on a, on a lithographic stone and print these wonderful plates of Rembrandt. If you can find this, uh, I, I really suggest you look at it because it's a wonderful early example of photolithography. Among the British and the Europeans, of course, the Grand Tour included the far reaches of the empire, and photography served brilliantly to provide a vivid sense of, of these exotic places to the stay-at-home. And so here you have uh, the title page of uh, Mr. Francis Bedford's tour in the East, which is uh, 1862. You had John Thompson out in China, uh, in Hong Kong in this case, he e Shin, the first Prince King, uh, which uh, was, I'm sorry, it was done in Beijing, 1871-72, and then he moved to Hong Kong, set up a studio there, and he was very well known for his photographs of people and places. This is a merchant official, official Yang, and you can see the family on the upper level and official Yang uh, seated elegantly below. This is a photograph by Bourne and Shepherd, uh, one of the people who attended the Imperial Assemblage at Delhi, 1877. And back at home, Francis Frith, the gossiping photographer at Hastings, 1864. Not all travel was to far-off destinations. And so here we have a composite photograph, three different photographic images, uh, printed in albumen uh, from glass plates uh, on the title page and, of course, tipped in uh, in each copy of the book. The same photographer, Frith, only a few years earlier, had been depicting the shores of the Nile and uh, other dangerous places. So I suppose that, uh, that uh, Hastings was a relief when he got back to it. Uh, I suppose there were no crocodiles in Hastings. Other photographers accompanied geographic and scientific expeditions to the Arctic regions, bringing back the first authentic pictures many people had ever seen of the remarkable sites there. This is Dinsmore and Atchison, um, Bradford's expedition to the Pole, uh, 1864, or to the Arctic, not to the Pole. Um, and I think you all are familiar with the subsequent development of the parlor uh, stereotypes, um, these, these stereographs, I mean, these cards with two images on them. They were the, the television of the... Uh, 1870s and 80s, and people sat around and understood the world uh, by seeing these. These were the earlier versions, and they came out in book form. All of these expeditions issued reports that were richly illustrated. However, as clear as the demand was 
it was still hard to find a method of printing photographs to their full effect by a non-photographic process, unless you were willing to tip these into every copy of the book. And so therefore, if you wanted a larger edition, uh, you had to find something else. Uh, I show you William Bell's photograph from the Wheeler survey, uh, 1872, um, where they, of course, went out and saw areas around the Grand Canyon, uh, what we now know as the chain of national parks in the West. But in the publication, they were lithographs. And you can see how much of the impact uh, is diminished by the translation of the photograph into lithography. <clears throat> There's a change in the light and dark rendition. Uh, the aerial perspective isn't nearly as persuasive. Uh, and altogether, it just it doesn't really tell you uh, as much as you might like about the place and about the wonders of the natural landscape. The same was true in the recording of everyday life. Um, there was quite a movement now to understand uh, all the aspects of modern urban existence. And you had people like John Thompson and others photographing the street sweeper, the newsboy, uh, the shop girls, all over London uh, and other British cities. But even the crudest woodcut hardly could do justice to these photographs. Finally, Thompson, working <clears throat> with a printing company, happened on something called the Woodbury type, where a gelatin-coated uh, photograph could be impressed in, in another uh, make, it, make it positive of gelatin. And then you could cast that in, uh, in several copies because it was going to wear down. But you would dye the gelatin and print it on a uh, fine-coated paper. And the Woodbury type was an amazing process, this sort of dye gelatin with the different thicknesses of gelatin giving you the different tonalities. Uh, and you see here the street doctor, uh, one, of, one of the plates from Street Life in London uh, of, uh, of Mr. Thompson and Mr. Smith. Um, this, by the way, was the same John Thompson who had been out in China. So you can see that he looked at London with the same uh, clear eye that he had seen uh, as Asians. Another wonderful survey was done in 1868-77 by Thomas Annan for the uh, Glasgow Urban Trust, and this was the streets and closes of Glasgow, uh, a multi-volume set which shows you every, every street and every uh, enclosed area in the city. Uh, a remarkable publication. In this one, photogravure was used. At last, people had discovered how to, with the photograph, the use of a photographic negative, how to make a gravure plate, one that had a full range of tonality, and you could either use a screened or a grained image to be etched into this intaglio plate from the photographic negative, 
and uh, then print uh, a considerable edition before the plate war. And I, I, I'm always very happy to uh, think about Mr. Annan and his and his uh, his wonderful work in Glasgow. Now, photo engraving was coming into its own because as people discovered that you could use a photographic plate to make an intaglio image or any other kind of image, you could use it as a master. Photo engraving became a profession. Um, here's another, by the way, of Mr. Annan's uh, photographs. If anybody who knows American photography will also know the work of Jacob Rees, who did an alley exactly like this in New York. Uh, I don't think that either of the people had seen the other's work, but it's just one of those, I guess, alleys of slums with laundry hanging look the same in Glasgow or in New York. Uh, I'm sorry, this is a little dark, but it is a photogravure of a man named Emery Walker, who joined the typographic etching company in 1873 and became adept at a number of the Dawson processes and other printing processes uh, using photographic plates. The innovation of the Dawson process was that the photographic negative was used to transfer an image to the plate directly. Previously, often this had been done by the hand of an artist. And today, of course, using a photographic plate is familiar to us, but it was radical then. Then the negative uh, is exposed on the plate, and it's, which has been coated with the recess and it's developed, and then you can you can etch the plate or you can make it into a, uh, a relief plate, either way. The areas that you wash away are going to print, and uh, or if it's an intaglio, the cut, the, the lowered areas will hold the ink and can be printed the way an etching is printed. In any case, the photograph was essential to the transfer of the image. Now, Walker went on doing this kind of reproduction. Around 1883 or 4, he met a man named William Morris, his neighbor down in Hammersmith. And they were bonded by an interest in social welfare and in politics. And um, Walker spoke at the first series of lectures at the Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society. And he dazzled the audience, according to Oscar Wilde's account of these lectures with enlarged slides of typefaces and calligraphy. The story goes that Morris was so impressed by the slides that when he was walking home with Walker, he proposed on the spot that they should start collaborating on the design of a modern typeface based on some of these early models, improving on them. And Walker assisted him. He gave him some admirable printed books to look at and made photographic enlargements of 16th century types, which Morris redrew and created the uh, Kelmscott um, types. And what is not always remembered is that every one of the private press proprietors used Emory Walker's photographs as the basis for their type. They enlarged these letters, and then they drew on them, and they sent them off to punch cutters, usually Mr. Prince, and... and uh, that's where these came from. Even less well known than that is that Mr. 
Walker photographed the drawings for the woodcuts so that when Burne Jones and others made woodcuts, they first made a drawing which, which Walker would photograph and then print to the exact size that they were needed. At that point, the woodcut was made. And so I, I just want to salute um, uh, Mr. Walker and the art of photography uh, in its position in the private press movement. And, you know, we think of the period here as a wonderful photograph of uh, a young woman uh, swooning over the Kelmscott Chaucer, which, you know, it's the ultimately romantic thing um, that this is the symbol of the handwork of the artist. And yet it was, and, and also it reflected uh, medieval times or early Renaissance times. Yet it used some of the most modern technology of its day in getting there. And I've always thought that was something people ought to keep in mind as they understand uh, how photography and the printed book relate to one another. Here is one of Mr. Walker's photographs. This one for Lucien Pizarro at the Aranyi Press. And you can see it's a photographic print. And over it, Pizarro has drawn in India ink and then uh, retouched in, in Chinese white in a few places uh, the letters uh, which will be cut uh, for, see here, here is a good strong one. These are getting bleached out there. He likes this Y and so on. And he has drawn these, and then punches were cut, smoke proofs were taken, and finally the Aranyi type was made. The ability to work in photogravure also allowed photographic illustration of exceptional subtlety in the hands of certain committed artists like P.H. Emerson. Here is his Photos of East Anglian Life, 1888. All printed himself on his own etching press from his own handmade uh, photogra photogravure plates. Remarkable. If there was no mishap in the printing press, uh, or actually I, it was in shipping these, uh, the... Um, the books, of course, could be quite extraordinary. I show you here uh, Alvin Langdon Coburn's illustration for H.G. Wells' The Door in the Wall. Uh, 1911, Mitchell Kennerly. The problem was that there was, I think it was a, a mishap in the printing of these. And so a number of the plates had to be redone. And it was uh, a very, very... I'm sorry, this was lost in transit to the publisher. Uh, there was another one where the, uh, in Emerson where the uh, printing went wrong. And so, uh, you, you know, you did have problems. Nonetheless, remarkable photogravures and photogravure became important in such publications as camera work, which Alfred Stieglitz published in New York uh, when he began using gravure. He published his steerage. This is the 1907 photogravure of steerage. And he and Paul Strand and their colleagues began to think of gravure as as much a, an original printing photographic process as it was to take your negative, go into the darkroom and print a paper print. And he's right. 
I just thought I'd show you in another of Stieglitz's publications, 291, a caricature of uh, Stieglitz by Francis Picabia. Uh, here, this is Stieglitz, mad and in love. Um, There were because now you could get such good reproduction. <clears throat> the art of photography. I'm sorry for these being crooked. They seem to have slipped in the mouth. Um, these wonderful uh, photo secession uh, photographic artist prints could go around the world, and they did. They went to America, Germany, France, uh, in publications such as this, uh, and the studio art and photography number, and of course, uh, in less elegant publications like the photograms of the year. People took these very seriously, and they had these wonderful reproductions that, as with the poster movement that spread around the world immediately uh, after the uh, 1880s, 90s, uh, so it was with photography. And the French lived up to their raffish reputation with publications of perhaps a more questionable flavor, but also carried home eagerly by tourists to, to France. The new esthétique meant, of course, just for artists, but never mind. Um, some serious scientific work was done in photography. You know about Edward Moybridge, uh, who uh, both in California and uh, on the East Coast did these wonderful successive photographs of, of people and animals in motion. Thanks. Um, and, of course, uh, he was followed by uh, Thomas Aikens, who did the same thing. There's now much talk about this, the, the Aikens exhibition, currently on view uh, in New York and previously in Philadelphia, deals with Aikens's use of the photograph in preparation for his paintings. But it was important that they were also made into publications and that's because photogravure and halftone engraving now in the 1880s came into being, which would allow the photograph, unlike the photogravure, to be printed in the same press run with type. And that's where we go next. Now, there were early attempts at this. Jacob Reese wrote an important book, How the Other Half Lives. Uh, however... It was illustrated with woodcuts, in this case by Kenyon Cox from the photograph I just showed you. And you can see how much less uh, informative and impressive the woodcut is. But that's the way people at first knew Jacob Reese's photography. The actual photographs were only really published in the 1940s uh, when Alexander Allen discovered the plates at uh, the New York Historical, I think it was, um, you know, city, Museum of the City of New York, and um, they came out then. <clears throat> However, we soon move forward. People can do the halftone, which you all know about because you're all experts in these things. Uh, and you now know that there was an amazing burst of creative energy in book illustration in the 1920s and 30s. This is the 1925 um, uh, book. I think it's by uh, Rochenko, uh, which, which shows you the use, you can see here, of um, a good many uh, halftones printed 
uh, with this very uh, remarkable composition uh, in, in more than one color, actually, uh, or here uh, on the interior. This is a, a spread from a book by a man named Latzlo Moholy Naj, who uh, left his native Hungary, went to Germany, was working with the Bauhaus uh, when he had to get out of Germany because Hitler curtailed the Bauhaus. He came to London. And in 1936, Moholy, of all things, uh, did something very much like John Thompson had done uh, and did street people and other uh, wonderful scenes uh, in London. He was commissioned to do a great many things, then came to uh, Chicago and started the new Bauhaus. Um, I will now whiz along, mention the uh, new photojournalism that was also possible when Felix Mann and others uh, photographed Mussolini uh, there were advances in, in candid cameras, uh, small format cameras. There were advances in half-tone and gravure photographic printing. And, of course, that led right on to mass magazines such as Life. I show you the first cover and the spread from that early edition of Life. And the books that came from those photojournalists. Spanish War, Robert Capa, Death in the Making, uh, with an amazing photographic cover of his famous uh, photograph of the uh, of the rebel being killed, um, and a spread uh, of the book there. Um, joining forces with writers, or sometimes working on their own books, there were many, many, many photographic books in the 1930s. Um, I show you Ansel Adams making a photograph with not only photographic cover, but with varnished photographic halftones uh, in the book, so that when you look at them, uh, they give the most extraordinary effect uh, of, of the photographic prints that Adams was so keen on making. Edward Weston, the camera on Port Lobos, these are all things you probably know, but I wanted to put them into the context of these other photographic books that had happened over the years. And to show you, you know, just imagine, this could not have been done 30 or 40 years earlier, where a Western plate could have been reproduced in halftone this beautifully. But by now, you had uh, Weston doing the limited editions club Leaves of Grass, 1942. Uh, you have Edward Steichen, who had worked with Stieglitz back in the old days, now with his daughter, uh, who was a child psychologist of note, doing children's books with photographic illustrations. Absolutely quite fantastic. Um, you have writers like Sherwood Anderson utilizing the Foreign Security Administration files uh, and <coughs> Cartier, here is Anderson's book, Hometown. And Henri Cartier-Bresson going to China. A very different sense. Can you remember what John Thompson's photographs of China looked like? Here is Cartier, and you can see the informality and the sense of, of immediacy that the books he created uh, 
managed to transmit. Well, many books published after the Second War in the United States used brilliant halftone. Not all important photographers. Uh, here is Paul Strand, Time in New England, a remarkable book. But not all photographers felt it was necessary to achieve that sense of quality. Some of them really liked a little grittier kind of halftone, something that looked like it came out of the newspapers. Here's Richard Avedon with uh, James Baldwin, Nothing Personal, 1964. Um, or Avedon's uh, Rolling Stone 1976 project, in which he actually uses newsprint. And, and you have, you have uh, uh, Mr. Kissinger and uh, Senator Mansfield. Uh, but here the size makes for the impact uh, and, and that, that the crudeness of the newspaper halftone. I think this was an 80 screen. I mean, he really didn't care. And it was just a matter of giving you that sense of image, big and bold. Other artists sought for the opposite effect. Here's Ed Ruscha doing one of the big little books. And there is the inside of his big little book. Also done on cheap paper with lousy halftones, but wonderful composition and, and very, very unusual uh, subject. And now, 1970, Bruce Davidson's remarkable East 100th Street. Firms like Rappaport and Meriden prided themselves on printing superbly, and the photographers gave them ample business. Davidson, Danny Lyons. Uh, and I'll just throw in for good measure Eugene Feldman in Philadelphia, a remarkable artist, taught at Penn, uh, ran a commercial printing place called the Falcon Press. There he is in his shop. He did books. This is a book about learning uh, Portuguese, in which he used the photo engraving camera as the tool for these plates. And that's a highly enlarged half-tone image that you see, which has been reduced and used as the printing plate over there. Or here a book on Oscar Niemeyer, the architect in Brazil. And you can see, again, that he's reduced the photograph uh, very creatively and printed it on this spread. I couldn't go by without mentioning Giovanni Marderstein. Uh, the Officina Bodoni, his use of remarkably sensitive halftones when he used photographic illustration. Uh, he used the colotype, a gelatin printing process uh, that was a favorite of fastidious printers until the last colotype machine at the Meriden Gravure Company broke down. Or maybe it was the old German who was running it broke down, but uh, they no longer were able to use it. Uh, and the wonderful halftones, such as lay this laurel, uh, John Benson, who had worked at Meriden and, of course, later got a MacArthur for his work in, uh, in uh, uh, halftone printing. This is, of course, from the Great St. Gordon's uh, Monument on Boston Commons. Just a side trip before we close. I'm going to go right by that. Uh, show you a couple of books that interest me. Uh, the 36 Vues de la Tour Eiffel of Henri Rivière 
uh, not a very common book. A couple hundred copies of this printed. Rivière uh, took off from Hokusai's uh, 36 views of, views of Fuji, and he has 36 lithographic plates in imitation of Japanese woodcuts uh, that show in every one some aspect of the Eiffel Tower. Now, there is this one, including getting close up and watching the construction. But interestingly, this came from a photograph. And what was fascinating to me as I began to study this book was where Riviere drew all of his material. It was equally interesting to him to see the photograph as a source uh, for his very uh, modern, because in 1880, uh, uh, well, 19, I guess it was 1888 to 1902, ran over some years. Uh, he, you know, he was in the avant-garde. He was thinking about Japanism and other, other great uh, modernities of the time after the Art Nouveau period. George Bernard Shaw was such a noted and enthusiastic amateur photographer that he even posed, as you see him here, for Mr. Coburn, which proved, I think, his dedication to his art. But what is not so generally known is that Shaw's last book is illustrated with his own photographs and as well as his own verses. And so here is Shaw's photographic record of Ayat St. Lawrence uh, and his, uh, his poetry. Not much outside its rooms within are rivaled by no other inn, and so on. Um, you know, of course, about Lewis Carroll being a wonderful photographer. You may not know that uh, he also illustrated a copy of Alice uh, by pasting his own photographs in far less well-known are some other authors who were also photographers who photographed this photograph of Paris Boulevard in 1894 Emile Zola who photographed these prisoners in Siberia around 1890 Chekhov so the more and, and you can go on with this I mean there's Strindberg, there are many other people who are visual artists and also use photography uh, where you will see that this plays directly into their own creative work. And I think this is another place in which the photograph has an impact on the book, although perhaps not as directly a physical impact as before. Anyway, we're drowning in pictures today. Even Richard Avedon makes lipstick ads. Virtually every book we use Type is set from photographs. Photographs are everywhere. The two arts that were apart at first and made so much dif difficulty in creating uh, junctions between them finally have grown together inextricably. So let's end with a plate from the 1844 Pencil of Nature, combining photography in the book in a particularly felicitous manner, I think. Uh, Talbot was equally a man of science and a romantic. 
He was a contemporary of both Herschel and Shelley. And in the text for this plate, he starts by discoursing on the power of invisible light, like ultraviolet and infrared, to reveal action. And goes on to say, for to use a metaphor we have already employed, the eye of the camera would see plainly where the human eye would find nothing but darkness. Alas, that this speculation is somewhat too refined to be introduced with effect into a modern novel or romance. For what a denouement we should have if we could suppose the secrets of the darkened chamber to be revealed by the testimony of the imprinted paper. Well, for me, it's the sense of revelation and mystery that gives photography such a secure place in modern life and its combination with uh, imprinted paper has revolutionized the way we live, the way we transmit information, and I thank you for your patience.